They need history, something to prove that their origins are that ancient. Stealing is in their blood, starting with their first prince Andriy Bohlupsky and finishing with their modern Tsar Putin, who appropriates everything and says that Lenin created Ukraine, that everything Ukrainian belongs to Russia and that all cities in Ukraine are Russian. Rus existed on modern Ukrainian territories. This title spread to other parts and was stolen by Russians, Moscovites, and we have to return it somehow. You heard Ivan Sidor, one of the guests of our podcast Why Do They Steal? My name is Anna Polinchuk, and this is our final fifth episode. In the previous four episodes, we talked about daring thefts of Ukrainian culture by Russians. But there were so many of them during the centuries that it's impossible to count them all. The scale of this catastrophe is shocking. The empire, under different names, was stealing and appropriating Ukrainian culture, thus erasing Ukrainian origin. For example, one of the main Russian icons is the Virgin of Vladimir. This is what Russian Wikipedia says about it. The most ancient of known preserved icons and the most reverted of miraculous icons of the Russian Orthodox Church. It had been used to crown Russian Tsars for centuries. But in fact, this icon does not belong to the Russian Church, and it is not even called the Virgin of Vladimir. It was brought from Constantinople to Kyiv in the 12th century. It was called Vizharat icon because it was kept in the Vizharat monastery near Kyiv. And it became the Virgin of Vladimir when Andriy Bohlupsky stole it and brought it to the city of Vladimir in modern Russia. While working on this podcast, we conducted nearly 20 interviews and consultations with historians, lawyers, and researchers. So, in this final episode, we'll try to understand how Ukrainians should deal with these thefts to return what belongs to them. It's incredibly difficult, but it must be done. So, we'll begin the episode about the future with one of the leading Ukrainian lawyers, Andriy Karnauhov. Restitution is the restoration of rights. Repatriation is the return of objects outside a particular state's territory. If Russia had adhered to law, this question wouldn't have been raised. Something serious must happen in Russia for them to plead guilty and return everything. There are political mechanisms and judgments of the domestic and international courts. It can be done, but practically it's impossible to do. Yet it is still worth documenting. Sooner or later we will face the question of protection or return through the courts. It might be domestic courts or international courts. In any case, I'm not sure that Russia will say, oops, sorry, our bad, we'll return everything at once. It will probably happen via certain judicial proceedings. Returning one's cultural heritage is vital for state building. Some people understood it at different times. The first time people started talking about returning Ukrainian artifacts from Russia was during the revolution of 1918. It was a short period when the Ukrainian People's Republic existed. The commission 
to return Ukrainian valuables was created after the declaration of Ukraine's independence in 90s, but there was always a lack of political will or resources to finish the process. Only now have people started talking about how much Russians have stolen or appropriated. But very often Ukrainians don't even know which of their valuables are in Russia. Anton Drobovich, the head of the Ukrainian Institute of National Remembrance, will tell us about one such example. The Chronicle of Samila Velichko. He was Mazepa's scribe, and by Mazepa's order he wrote a big story, a narrative about Cossacks. Where were they from, who they were, what was their temperament, how they lived, and what were their customs. It wasn't that simplified image of dancers in blue trousers. You can say that it was a mercenary or registry night order, a group of entirely free people cursed the corvée and became free soldiers so fierce that even France hired them. So it was such a fascinating cultural, political and social phenomenon. And Samila Velichko aimed to describe the history of this phenomenon, and he succeeded. After Mazepa's defeat, this chronicle was traveling and ended up in St. Petersburg, in the archives of ancient acts of St. Petersburg. By the way, almost the entire Baturin archive is there as well. The paradox of this story is that the chronicle of Samila Velichko wasn't published the way it was written until the last year. It's our significant loss that we often do not know about the ancient texts. And even if if we do, they are not researched enough, systematized or scientifically analyzed. Here we have to give credit to a Russian scientist. There are adequate people there despite the war. For example, Tatyana Tairova Yakovleva. She has a PhD in history, and as any decent person in Russia, she is persecuted and accused of betrayal. But together with her students, she found the chronicle in this archive, researched, scanned and published it in the Clio publishing house. The book is in the top 30 books of the independent Ukraine. It is a unique publication written about the Cossacks by a Cossack. It helps us to understand who we are. This book would be of a Gutenberg Bible's level in any other country. For us, this is like the Perisopnitsa Gospel or the Primary Chronicle. It is something our identity is based on. While working on the podcast, we realized that Ukrainians don't know the value of what they possess right now. At the same time, people in other parts of the world have known how to protect heritage for a long time. And Ukrainians understood that they had to learn it only after losing numerous historical artifacts. Elmira Ablalimova, Ukrainian museum worker, social activist and Crimean Tatar, knows what the international experience of struggle for one's culture and history means. We are working on one project and had a fascinating interview with Peter Stone. He's a very renowned expert who worked for UNESCO. He used to work on the territories of armed conflicts a lot. And we asked him, tell us please, is there a protection of cultural heritage objects model in the world that would be the most effective, the best? 
and he told us about South Korea. I recalled the history of South Korea and its geography. It reminded me of Ukraine. They also have an aggressive neighbor. They developed an incredible protection system. Every year they conduct special training for everyone in the country, including the museums. And they work on various possible scenarios. It might be an armed conflict, a natural catastrophe or a nuclear threat. And they have a plan for it. If an institution doesn't participate in this training, it's penalized. So it's a state effort everyone takes part in. We have also interviewed one of the leading experts in cultural heritage protection from South Korea. We asked him how they treat their cultural heritage. He didn't understand the question at all. He said that cultural heritage is something significant to them and that they raise their children to respect their cultural heritage. We have to nurture such respect towards our heritage. How can we nurture it? For example, by telling the truth. And the truth is that Ukraine has a rich history supported by numerous relics and artifacts, just like your home country. Even if some of them are appropriated by Russia. Fortunately, even something stolen from you can be seen in an unusual museum. Art historian Diana Klochko has long talked about creating such a museum. I think it would be nice to create a virtual museum in Ukraine. It would represent our heritage that was illegally taken away. And people would come to see manuscripts, incunabula, jewelry, antiquities, the Scythians, and so on. It would be accompanied by a brief story with a photo and useful links. So we could see how much was taken from us, how much poorer our understanding of ourselves and our culture has become, how we were made amateurs, our cultural heritage was stolen and made Russian. Let's take Great Britain, for example. They were taking the marble from Parthenon, but they don't claim it as part of British history. They say that this is ancient, ancient Greece, antique history. They do not deceive, they don't claim it, while Russia does. What's the problem? They convinced everyone that that's their heritage. It's simply another level of cynicism and crime. But we have to work with real museums too. We must reinvent many of them because it is not enough to show a splinter now and tell your visitors Scythians, Gauls or Greeks made it. Modern museums must be modern. And many people are talking about it louder and louder. Anton Drabovich is among them. A museum cannot be a seller for exciting things. It doesn't work like that. It has to tell stories and do it in a fascinating way. One can tell you the story about a spoon's thousand-year journey and make it so captivating that a book, a movie or a comic can be created based on it. And everyone will come to the museum to see the spoon it is written about. If there is no cooperation with visitors and no work with museum employees, this meeting won't happen and museums will go extinct with time. Most Ukrainian museums do not interact with their visitors. They are stuck in this 
Imperial Museum view, that transformed into an ideological propagandist view. It died in 1991, and only some museums managed to break free and are now moving towards social interaction. This process should continue. Museums must transform into such exciting places. You can make museums more interesting by searching for new things. There are new artifacts underneath us that are waiting to be found, and there are people in Ukraine who can find them. For example, one of the most famous archaeologists in Ukraine, Yuri Boltrik, has already become famous for many important excavations. I would invest some money and dig more if I was a statesperson. You wouldn't have to spend much money, but the profit would be significant. New gold the world hasn't seen yet. Dig it, promote it, and don't take it away. If you want to see it, go to Kyiv. Where else to dig in Ukraine? There are places archaeologists know about. Archaeology isn't about written story, it's about an unwritten one. You dig it up, describe how it was, and leave it to the next generations. You might not understand why it was like that, but the next generations might dig some more, or they will know why it was like that. And then the system will be created. And you can make historical plots out of this system. But you have to fill it with something, and we have nothing. We need a place to bring children and tourists. There must be self-awareness in the nation. We have to be aware that it's our heritage. Realizing that you belong to this nation does not allow you to betray it. It's like aristocracy. Sometimes it happens, but rarely. And we lack it. We lack our aristocracy. We cannot forget that Ukraine was once part of the Soviet Empire, but we must work with this history to articulate our place in those events, and we have to be conscious and careful with it. Evhenia Kuleba, a social activist and urbanist, works a lot with these issues. First, specialists must identify what shall be decommunized, what shall not, and in which way. There are a few examples in Kyiv, the Motherland Monument and the Shores Monument, an outstanding example of a horse statue. At the same time, it is Shores. You can demolish it, but what's next? There was a brilliant idea to create a museum of totalitarianism. Of course, you cannot move the Motherland statue. But all the decommunized monuments we can move must be moved to this museum for people to see. It's part of our history, and we cannot escape it. But we can remember the past and the things that cannot happen again. These relics of the Soviet Union can never return to our lives. The motherland is one of Kyiv's symbols. Whether we like it or not, it's part of our history. Some people believe it must be deconstructed, smelted and forgotten. But it's up to the experts to decide whether it's an architectural or historical monument. It would be wrong and unprofessional to let people decide. The Motherland Monument is the highest monumental sculpture in Europe, and located under it is the National Museum of the History of Ukraine in the Second World War. The statue was built in the USSR in 1981 and is a major symbol within Kyiv. 
This statue depicts a female figure holding a shield and a sword, which represents victory during the Second World War. Originally, the statue was named Victory, but people have become more accustomed to calling it Motherland. One controversy surrounding the statue is that the emblem of the Soviet Union, the USSR coat of arms, is depicted on the statue's shield. Led by Russia, the USSR has delayed the independence of Ukraine for 70 years and killed thousands of cultural figures and millions of ordinary Ukrainians. Currently, there are multiple projects underway to update the statue. In fact, the Ministry of Culture and Information Policy of Ukraine recently approved a project to replace the emblem of the Soviet Union with the national symbol of Ukraine, the Ukrainian trident, Trizub. This change took place recently in commemoration of Ukraine's 32nd Independence Day. On August 24, 2023, Anton Drabovich also speaks about the renewed attitude towards cultural heritage. This war can change our attitude towards our cultural heritage. We can finally realize that this is our conscience, inspiration, pain, and part of our history about ourselves. But it's only a possibility if after the war we go again like, not the right time again, culture will wait, we have to rebuild bridges and warehouses first, and then in 50 years, when everything is renovated, we can return to culture. Well, it will be a bummer. There are many optimistic things. I can see how our culture is fighting. We begin to understand the value of Skovereda when we see destroyed museums and how statues are protected. We realize this value. We see that these things, people and figures, these stories give us strength. We feel that we're different thanks to these figures. And it gives us hope that we'll finally understand our heritage. But it won't happen if we don't work, and intellectually too. If you don't ask me a question, I won't answer it. And others won't hear it or consider it a political or civil objective. Otherwise, they may not approach the politician and ask, what have you done for the museum? It's my heritage, my ancestry, do something. I don't need your provision or a pack of buckwheat. I mean that if this demand and this dialogue are not there, then we won't have our heritage. It will disappear and just lie somewhere not interesting for anyone. It was the final episode of Why Do They Steal? For five episodes, we discussed what Ukraine lost due to Russia's imperial habit of stealing and appropriating, and about what artifacts Ukrainians are fighting for now in the courts and even on the battlefield. And all this must someday return. Return to the motherland. Watch Why Do They Steal on the Ukrainska Pravda YouTube channel and listen to it on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify and other platforms. Subscribe and share it. The material was prepared with the support of the International Renaissance Foundation. Production 435 Films Showrunners Korni Hryciuk and Anna Polinchuk Screenwriters Korni Hryciuk and Yuri Marchenko Producer and narrator Anna Polinchuk Sound Supervisor Vasily Avtushenko Assistant Irina Terletska Project Coordinator Olena Kirichak English Translation Anastasia 
Perun, English Voiceover, Alina Zivakova, Rob Feldman, Katarina Gordienko, English Voiceover Recording, Pavlo Melnik, and Ala Shmatok.